As I read from God's word, let me just say this. Satan hates it when we sing the doxology, which is is reason enough to sing it as loud as you can. You should go to bed on Sunday night hoarse, and people go, did you go to the game? And they say, you say, no, I went to church. I'm just excited about Revelation 12. <laughs> it's, it, is, it is a picture of the great conflict of the promise of enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That though at times we may be aloof to the true drama of redemptive history, John gives us insight into the stakes of the kingdom. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in the heavens. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems, on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who is ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, our desire is that we might not only sing loudly, but live loudly and faithfully unto you. But this is not possible unless you have first begun in us a work that you have promised also to finish. And in order to be motivated, to be fit for the fight, to find in ourselves a reason why you have granted to us a revealed hope, an apocalyptic vision of your glory and your conquest and the furthering of your kingdom, so that we might say our mission is not in vain, but we will be victorious. And though we may go to the grave, many, if not all of us here, having not yet finished the work, you will finish it, either in our children or our children's children, or in a thousand generations to come. Our hope is this, That Christ has slain the dragon and his kingdom will never end. And so, Lord, may we see this great mystery unfolded to our eyes this morning so that we might live with every hope that what you have begun, you will finish as our great king. We pray this in your name. Amen. One of my favorite segments, and it may still be on TV, I don't know, uh, I don't watch a lot of broadcast sports, was when they invited Peyton Manning. Now, for those of you who don't know Peyton Manning, great quarterback, Indianapolis Colts, Denver Broncos. Uh, he threw balls for Tennessee, University of Tennessee, was great at the time. It was probably the last time they were ever good. 
although they're doing okay this season. I shouldn't talk about sports too much on the Lord's Day, except I have a point. They would have him come on and do these segments um, where he would essentially unpack plays on the field. Now, if you know about Peyton Manning, he called all of the plays. He didn't get the plays from the sideline and the offensive coordinator that would sit in the booth. He would look at the defense, and he would call plays on the fly. He was an artist on the field. And because of his knowledge of the game, one of these broadcasts said, you know, let's get this guy and dissect plays. And what John is doing in the book of Revelation is he is dissecting for us with his little right pencil that they draw on the TV and it appears on your screen and say, this is where the eyes of the quarterback are. This is where the receivers are running their routes. And this is how the line will shift because he's saying, you go here, you do this. He understands and he explains what's happening for someone like me who doesn't know what's happening. What the book of Revelation is, is the playbook for the progress of the growth of Christ's kingdom on earth. And for John, as he is writing to the New Testament church, the big question is, what will it look like as Christ's kingdom comes? And this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like on the surface. This is how the play is being run. And this is what it looks like in the booth, as it were, as Christ himself calls the plays. If that sports metaphor goes over your head, I understand. Come and talk to me. I get it. The point is this. Christ has a plan. And that plan is captured in the book of Revelation. And the unfolding of that plan is conveyed in mysterious, symbolic, apocalyptic language... Because it, it conveys things that even we cannot truly understand or behold with the limits of human language and reason and sense. We come to a text in this morning that is one of those, especially for young men, there's a dragon. And then there's a child. And there is this sort of cosmic supernatural, almost fantasy, sci-fi literature language explaining this thing that is happening that you would never see happen on earth. But it's happening in the heavens. It's happening in such a way that John is conveying to the church there is enmity between the woman and the child and the serpent. It is the extension of Genesis chapter 3 where God comes to Adam and to his wife, and he says to them, you guys, you messed up. You rebelled. And there is now sin within this image-bearing people. And despite your rebellion, I will pursue you out of the garden, and I will one day redeem you by giving you a son who will destroy the power of the serpent once and for all. You've got to know your Old Testament to get the most out of Revelation. And so as we move through this little section, these six verses, we need to understand the conflict, the stakes, and the victory of the child. Two points that I want to make this morning. The first, the woman and the child. And then second, the dragon 
and the child. The woman and the child and the dragon and the child. I dare you, if you like to sketch during sermons, make sure you're listening. It's going to be hard not to draw a dragon today. <laughs> but you've got to know, the dragon is the, is the wicked character. He's always the wicked character, right? Unless you read one of those fairy tales where he's a misunderstood dragon. That's not this dragon. <laughs> he's no gentle dragon. Let's look at the first point, the woman and the child. Now the section opens here. A new sign that John sees. A great sign appeared in heaven. This is that realm, the supernatural realm that we cannot see with our naked eyes. But John was granted it in a vision, an incident of revelation. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, this language evokes the vision of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, in which Joseph comes to his brothers and he speaks of the 12 stars. Each of those brothers, the patriarchs of Israel, are the stars that the woman wears. They form the crown. What John sees here, the woman, is the covenant people of God. It is the covenant people of God to whom is given a son. They have received the promise. And so Adam, after he receives the promise of God that a son would be born to his wife or to a woman, that son would come and destroy the very one who led them into temptation, Satan the great accuser. Now, it is not really here into the book of Revelation that it is made wholly clear that the serpent at the tree is the dragon of Revelation 12 that is Satan himself. That this unfolding of Revelation reveals to us who the players really are. Now, God promises after the cursings, there is a word of hope. And God says to those actors, Adam, she's not called Eve yet, and the serpent, man, woman, serpent, that God would place enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That is, there will be through human history a lineage of good and a lineage of evil. Those who are pagan, heathen, reprobate, and those who are elect by God's grace. And falling down or out from that promise, God makes good upon it. And we see Cain and Abel. Abel is, of course, murdered by Cain. And then Seth. And in every one of these great stories of the Old Testament, we see the fulfillment of that promise of enmity. God is the one who has declared enmity. And that promise of enmity is cursing upon one family and salvation and grace and blessing upon another. And what it is and how it's carried out is ultimately through the ministry of a child. And here in this terrifying, epic language of Revelation 12, we find a woman, this woman that constitutes the church of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Old and in the New Testament, who is giving birth to a child. It is from the elect, the covenant people of God, that Jesus the Messiah is born. 
And so verse 2, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, this language of crying out, pain and birth, evokes the curse upon the woman, right? In pain you will give childbirth. And that isn't just, well, a promise, right? You ladies that have born children, right? You've realized that. And it's not just the pain of pushing another human into the world. It's the pain and disappointment of all that is part of having children. Children, you're a pain. I've always wanted to say that from the pulpit. <laughs> you're a pain. I was a pain. Why are we pains? The same reason why when you go out into the field, there are thorns and thistles. Because you and I are sinful. And Adam, in his sin and rebellion, brought sin into the world. And so there is this cosmic eternal, well, not eternal, but up until this point, conflict between good and evil. And so you have the prophets crying out, Lord, how long? Perhaps you have cried this way. Lord, how long? And that groaning is a groaning of, of anticipation, and it is a mixture of both longing to see Christ and why are you not here yet? And so we look at the Old Testament, we see the prophets, many of them were killed. And so from the time of when the promise was first given to the time of the incarnation, there is a period of of groaning under the anticipation of when the baby will come. If you are not groaning in the anticipation of of the fullness of the revelation of Christ's kingdom, then you are not invested in that kingdom rightly. This is why every woman who believed in the promise, along with her husband, longed for a son. Why a son? Could this be the son? Would it be Hannah's son, Samuel? No. Was it David? No. Solomon? No. He was Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. That is the child. And so, in verses 1 and 2, we read of the woman and her relationship to this child, and he is the fulfillment of the promise and the prophecies of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and what? The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Almighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then the promise in relationship to that is that his kingdom will have no end. You and I are members of an everlasting kingdom through the rule and reign of Christ Jesus. Now, we won't get there yet. Well, we will in a minute. But before we get there, we need to look at, well, verse 2, as I've already pointed out the child is born into a world not only of anticipation by the saints but verse 3 at the very or in the very presence of a great and terrifying enemy now more on the child and the dragon in the second main heading but Christ's birth his promised unto the church It is given to the covenant people of God. 
It is manifest and revealed to them, right? The angels came and they pronounced to the shepherds, to the wise men. And then there were many who embraced Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. And to those he came as a son, as a man, fully God, fully man. And then John skips from the birth to verse 5. Now we will look at the dragon stuff in a minute, but not yet. But as it relates to the child, the first thing we read is verse 2 of his birth. And then verse 5, she bore or gave birth to a male child who was caught up to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What is John describing here? This is easy. His ascension and his exaltation. So in our own confession of faith, When we read of the ministry of Christ, it really falls into two categories, his humiliation and his exaltation. Now, Christ's humiliation consists of a few things. Number one, his being made like us. He took upon himself flesh and blood. And being found in the appearance of man, he was born under the law, He felt the temptations and the afflictions of having human flesh. He was crucified. He felt the nails. He did not appear to be man or only appear to have flesh, but he took upon our flesh. And so when those nails were driven into his wrists, it hurt. When he was whipped, when he was crucified... And then when he felt the full wrath of the Father for our sins, he felt in his soul the affliction of everlasting torment for a season. Christ has had it harder than you will ever have it. So stop complaining. And look to Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and scorned its shame. Right? And so even in the church, the vision that we have of Christ is one of one of a man who came and took his lumps for our sake. That's his humiliation. That is what is envisioned in verse 2. He became a man. He, be- he was born a child. He had to grow up in this world. No easy feat. But he was also. Because of his obedience, Paul says in Philippians 2, because he endured humility even to the point of death and obeyed the Father even to the point of death, he was given the name above every name. He was exalted. He took the throne. Now John has already spoken of that. When all of heaven is enraptured in that event, when Christ transcends earth and the skies and sits upon that invisible throne in his human body and everyone is waiting and he comes in and everybody shouts Hosanna in that heavenly Jerusalem. That is what we are to see. Between the woman and the child born into the world He is born unto the church that he might rule and reign and redeem the church. And his ruling coincides with the end of this chapter, the preservation of the faithful. 
This is a callback to what we've already seen in the book of Revelation, where Jesus warns the disciples and the saints to get out of Jerusalem for three and a half years, the time that it took Rome to sack the city, which is really a type of God's provision of deliverance, not just from even temporary persecution, although not always, but the final judgment that is to come. This child is the redeemer of the woman, of the church. He is the savior of the world. He is the child who becomes a king. Now, he's not born a king. In fact, there is a great contrast. It is the dragon that is dressed with crowns. The child is born into a place of of weeping and crying and antagonism. But what happens is, after his humiliation, that is when he experiences the rod of rule and reign. In order for Christ to become king, he must first suffer for us. If Christ did not suffer for us and redeem us, it would be a kingdom without a people, as I've already said before. What kind of kingdom is that? An empty kingdom. This is not a righteous kingdom. This is why I'm fully convinced that the kingdom of heaven is greater in number than the kingdom of hell. I believe this with all my heart. And if you say... I don't see that happening, and I would say to you, just wait. It's a numbers game. Just wait. Christ is not done with us yet. He will establish a kingdom in which he can say, I've got more. Mine is greater. This is the child born in the very presence of the serpent. To us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. Born in a manger. Laid in a trough. And yet he is the king of heaven and earth. This is the prophecy. This is the promise of Isaiah that we read of Emmanuel. God with us. And so we find a loving mother crying out, giving birth to a child who will become the king of heaven and earth. But... And I'm not sure, well, you don't see this happening now, right? Let's say you go to the hospital or maybe a birthing center or maybe you gave birth to your children at home. The last thing that you want is a venomous serpent creeping around the halls, waiting at the foot of the bed. What do you need? Well, you need your, you lend your little track, like your playlist of the songs that you want to listen to. You know, your husband is there, though for a long time, husbands were not allowed in that room. You need... You need people that are there who are cheering you on. Come on, push! (laughs) You can do it! That is not the environment in which the church is given its greatest victory. In fact, when Martin Luther was asked to defend the doctrine that he was developing in response to a sort of bloated Um, ecclesiastical system at the time he gave what is now called the Heidelberg Disputations in April of 1518 after the 95 Theses in 1517 
And in the, Heidelberg, in the Heidelberg Disputations, this is what he said about true theology of the cross. That a theologian of the cross is one who ultimately takes all of divine revelation and they see it through the lens of Christ's suffering at Calvary as the means whereby the Christian is given great victory. And at the cross of Christ, the whole power structure of the world is inverted. And so we look at Christ upon the cross, and the world looks at him and says, For shame. What a wretch. What a weak man. But the Christian looks at Christ upon the cross, and they know that at that moment of great human weakness, he is destroying the power of sin and death forever. This is why the cross is the center and the foundation of the entire Christian faith. Which is why Paul says to the prideful Corinthians, I came preaching Christ because it abolishes, it destroys all human pride and satanic endeavor. And that leads us to the, the child and the serpent. That there was more than a loving mother in that room when the Son of Man was born into the world. Remember the decree that went out just prior to Jesus' birth? Herod, the pawn, not just of a Roman Empire, but of a satanic mission to destroy any hope that God could redeem sinners from hell, sent out a decree just like Pharaoh. Several hundred years before, every boy that is born to a Jewish woman put them to death. And praise God, the Jewish midwives had the wherewithal to reject a secular statist edict. And in the same way, the faithful in Christ's time. Now, remember, he fled. They fled. But Jesus was born into a societal context in which his life was forfeit. The serpent had power, had influence. The crowns that he wears are real crowns. And in his fall, he amassed to himself not only celestial, supernatural um, allies, the one-third of the angels that fell that we read of here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3. But the way in which Satan wields his power is through the earthly power structures of men. The state. Or any society where the unrighteous seek to triumph over the righteous. And he's hungry. He's hungry. Man, I don't want to make this... Anyway, I'm going to go off on a tangent. Roe v. Wade is an example of satanic appetite. And when I say it, what I mean is the blood of the children of men can do nothing to satisfy the wanton appetite of the great enemy of righteousness. There is a reason why in our nation and in the nations that have rejected the word of God, there is always a relationship between that rejection and the blood of the weak poured out on the altar. 
of satanic religion. You need to know why things are the way they are. Because the dragon is thirsty for the blood of men. Because they bear the image of Christ. They bear the image of God. And in the same way that he lies in wait, not only to kill the sons of the Israelite women in the time of Pharaoh in Exodus, or lies in wait in the era of the Roman Empire at the time of the birth of Christ, or when the Assyrian Empire would get the children of Israelites and they would take them by their feet and they would swing their heads into the rocks that surrounded the city. Why would they do such a thing? Because they are under the influence of the great dragon. If you're not talking that way, and if the world doesn't hear you talk that way, they're not getting the message. Our message must be far more polarizing than this is bad political move. No. You and I are involved in a great cosmic conflict, and it here culminates in Satan waiting with mouth agape that he may swallow the Son of God. And what happens? He does not succeed. He does not succeed in killing the Messiah because Satan's great plan is to deface the image of God in mankind. And Adam, instead of protecting his wife, instead of rebuking the servant, what did he do? He did not speak a word. The church has been silent for far too long. But Christ is upon the throne. Because of Adam's sin, the serpent gained power. And he wields that power through Pharaoh, through Darius. I don't remember who the king of Assyria was off the top of my head. But name him. Mao Zedong, Stalin, Hitler. All of those men are not mere instruments of a secular state. They are pawns in a satanic plot. This is what John is communicating to us. These are the stakes. If Christ had been swallowed, there would be no redemption. But under the protection by the Father, through the Holy Spirit, he and his mother were led into Egypt for a time and then came out of Egypt. And then Satan came to him in the wilderness and tempted him in there. And there Christ, through the word of God, preached to the serpent, said, No, I don't want your promises. They are paltry in comparison to what the Father has promised me. Which is why John moves from the incarnation to the exaltation. Because Christ succeeded in his mission. And what this picture is of this dragon with the seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems, which is a crown, is a picture of all of the beasts in the book of Daniel. And they are what? All of the great empires of earth that ally themselves against the church. And you know what is true of the church? We're here and Rome is gone. We're here and Babylon is an afterthought. We are here and Egypt and Assyria and Persia and all of those great nations that have allied themselves against Christ are gone. They're dust. They're nothing. So what does that mean? That the church as an instrument, well, as an object of Christ's affections is not just an instrument of conquest, but because Christ has put his special affection upon us, he will preserve and expand and grow us. 
but not without aggravation. Because the dragon, though he is in the resurrection of Christ, and even prior to this moment in being cast down from heaven, is still dangerous. But he is a pawn, like you and I, like all of creation, like all that God has made, subservient to the rule and reign of Christ Jesus. And just like the world does not look at Christ born into the world and suffering on the cross and identifying him as the Redeemer who will one day make total conquest of all the earth, Satan does not understand that as well. He does not understand the true implications of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so as we look at the dragon, we are to see him as terrifying. He is the enemy of the church. And this text is an expression of the cosmic supernatural war between righteousness and wickedness. But the child lives, and not only does he live, but he ascends to the throne where he rules with a rod of iron. He will judge the nations. That though Christ's ministry is often met with schemes of violence and murder, because Christ has died and been raised, we can too die and be raised with him. And so, these tactics, this reality, this reality of a hungry serpent that waits to undo all the good that Christ seeks to do, He has been defeated. This is all you need to know. There's a lot. But as it relates to a cheerful heart, an expectant and hopeful heart, in the midst of a difficult mission, Revelation chapter 12 verses 1 through 6 shows us what Christ has done and will do to the dragon. In fact, that theme expands in verses 7 through 12. And, I, you know, if I had time, I just don't have time. I mean, this, is, this is the story you tell to your children. Christ has come and the dragon is dead. Or he's wounded. And one day he will be dead. This is the This is not a, it is an elaborate, mysterious, symbolic story, but it is not untrue because the language is mysterious and symbolic. This is the story of human history, and and God has delivered it to us in such a way that the language captures our hearts. Christ has come to protect the very woman that gave birth to him. That Christ has come to the church that he might deliver the church. That this conflict on earth is what it is because of Revelation chapter 12 verses 1 through 6. And that any who come against the church in an effort to silence or cease the operations of Christ's kingdom on earth is not for us. But they have allied themselves with the dragon. They may wear nice suits and talk very nicely. Right? 
The premier of Canada, or president, or whatever he is, I can't remember his name. His name's not important. He's a tool of the dragon. And unless he repents and reverses all of those vile edicts that come from the pit of hell, just like any man that stands against Christ, belongs to a kingdom that has already been destroyed. All that you and I need to do is what? Tell each other this story. Cling to the glory and power of the risen child, now man, now the eternal Savior of the elect. Verse 6. Let's look at it one more time. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she is a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Christ protects his people. And not only does he often, not always, protect them from temporary persecution, but this is ultimately a picture of divine deliverance. Christ has rescued us from all the wicked devices and plots of the dragon. Christ was born, using the parlance of others in Christ's church, to slay the dragon and get the girl. That's what he was born to do. That is what he rules and reigns now to do. And you and I were born to help him in that fight. And so I have one, I've had several words of application, but really one primary. Let us not fear, but let's get to work with the one who has felled the great dragon so that he might have glory over the nations. Let's pray. Lord.